This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. We began with more evidence about neglect of residents in long-term care during the pandemic. Although the numbers show Canada has the worst record among high-income countries, 81% of the COVID deaths through the end of May were from nursing homes, the story is the same for all. Countries did not factor nursing homes into pandemic planning. The New York Times looked at Belgium, where residents were not allowed into hospitals, even though nearly half the hospital beds were empty at all times. The same thing with different numbers happened here. We've heard stories about hospitals denying access to long-term care residents, and we also know that many alternate level of care patients were transferred to long-term care from hospitals to clear space there. Joining Libby to discuss, as they do each Monday, the Zoomer Squad. David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Marketing Officer at CARP. Bill Van Gorder, Incoming Chief Policy Officer at CARP, while Marissa Lennox goes on maternity leave. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Interestingly, Belgium also had the highest, by far, even much higher than the United States, deaths per 100,000 population, like an insane, insanely high number. Uh, it's shocking. It's not surprising. And I think that, you know, it, it can't be attributed only to misjudgment and, gosh, we didn't know. Um, there were active policies to do this. Um, and if you want to start digging into the United States, it's scary. In New York, the highest rate, they actually were moving COVID-infected seniors back into nursing homes from hospitals. So widespread um uh, you know, mismanagement, and I think if we want to get later in the show into whether it's all a underlying ageism, that perhaps is the most disturbing, uh, you know, fact of all. Just nobody cared about these people. Bill, what do you make of this? You know, the Belgian officials uh, said that uh, denying care for the elderly was uh, never their policy. But once again, you know, ageism is rearing its ugly head. Um, the the whole public uh, discussion around COVID-19 uh, has really been devaluating uh, older adults. Um, it's an ageist attitude that makes uh, uh, people, first of all, think that somehow the pandemic is just an older adult population problem. And CARP has talked for a long time about the need for the generations to work together to maximize the uh, support uh, and uh, and valuing older older adults, uh, but it's still not happening, and this is just a really unfortunate example. Peter, one of the most poignant scenes was uh, when when ambulance um, when, when EMS people brought uh, brought a COVID infected elderly person back to the nursing home. They had hazmat suits on. They had you know they disinfected their ambulance. And they left the old person in a home that had no masks, no gowns, nothing. So they, they kind of knew what was going to happen. You know, I'm not accusing them of, of saying they had alternatives, but it, it was obvious what was going to happen if, if you release these people back into, into nursing homes. And, and they just did it. They, they said good luck and left. 
and and that's basically what governments around the world have been saying to the elderly. Good luck, you know. What are you going to be looking at through this week, David? Well, I'm going to be um, looking at signs of activity, signs of life on this file, other than optics. You know, they're going to have to do this, they're going to have to do that. Uh, and I would urge our audience to think, well, maybe they're not going to have to, because if ageism is really the the silent killer here, the, the, the under-the-surface attitude here, their perception is they're going to bob and weave to fend off the disaster and the bad headlines, but they really don't need to think this thing through all the way and make fundamental changes. They can keep putting bandages on for short-term expediency, and that's what I'm most afraid of, and that's what we're going to be vigilant about. Peter, what are you doing this week? I'm going to be following this because the governments at all levels have made the excuse that they were caught, you know, they were caught blindsided by by COVID and they, you know, long-term care homes were hit. They didn't know, you know, the extent of the disease, what it would cause. They don't have that excuse next time around. So um, I want to see some action, like David said. I want to see some... uh, you know, just some movement on preparing for a second wave because it's going to be just as deadly in the long-term care homes. And uh, building homes like 10 years down the road isn't isn't going to help that. So, you know, get get behind CARP and, and get some action now. Join CARP, join the movement, you know, add your voice to CARP and, and let, let's hear some real action. Okay. And Bill, what will you be up to? We're, we're going to be looking very carefully at the short-term plans for increasing the number of staff and the quality of staff in long-term care homes, because that's been a real, uh, a real issue. We're also going to be watching with great concern the fact that uh, Manitoba and BC are showing dramatic increases in COVID-19 cases in the last few days. And is this an indication that the second uh, wave is... Uh, coming. So uh, uh, both of those are going to be real, a real concern for CARP in the next week. David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Marketing Officer at CARP. Bill Van Gorder, Incoming Chief Policy Officer at CARP, while Marissa Lennox goes on maternity leave. And Peter Muggeridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, a.k.a. The Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fightback. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. This next story sounds like something out of a thriller rather than a courthouse where the story recently emerged. The allegation is that the Saudi Arabian crown prince sent a hit squad to Canada targeting a former Saudi intelligence czar who's a permanent resident. The team was discovered trying to enter this country and turned back. To take a closer look, Libby spoke with Phil Gursky, president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants, Dr. Christian Luprecht, political science professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and senior fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, as well as Ross McLean, a terrorism and security expert. I wasn't surprised at all. They did this to poor Jamal Khashoggi in Istanbul back in 2018. They killed him and dismembered him. The fact that they would go after a similar dissident in Canada is in keeping with MBS's uh, way of doing governance, a way of silencing critics. And by the way, you know, there are allegations in court, and it hasn't been proven, obviously, in a, in a U.S. court. But I know, happen to know for a fact, based on the sources I've talked to, this is actually true. This isn't an allegation uh, to me. This is actually, actually going to happen. And thankfully, due to either intelligence and or what Canada Border Services had, they returned back at the border because had they gotten through, Mr. Al-Jabri could have suffered the same fate as Mr. Khashoggi. Uh, that's just the way that, like I said, this is what MBS does to people. 
with whom he disagrees. He killed them. So you seem pretty sure about that. I have to say the one part of the story that I did not buy was that uh, our border agents just caught them in a lie or they were trying to get in and say they didn't know each other's separate kiosks. Uh, my bet would be was that they, they were tipped off and possibly tipped off by the intended victim himself. Ross? was the part that was just a little bit too nice, wasn't it? I yeah. mean, we all, we've, all, we've all gone through the border and gone through those tricky questions at the automatic kiosk, and it says, you know, are you here to murder somebody, or what are you here for? And they managed to magically put together that these, uh, you know, this team uh, was here to do something wrong. So, yeah, something sounded a bit off about that as to why they, why they weren't allowed in. What do you make of this whole story? Well, unfortunately for me, I'll t- I tell you what I don't... Uh, like about it. One of the things it certainly exposes is there are a lot of bad governments around the world, and it's not just restricted to Saudi Arabia. There's a lot of governments that live by terrorizing, killing, torturing uh, their citizens. There's a whole whack of them. You know, Iran's the same way and, and a few other places. They're just horrific and they're abuses to people if they don't fall into political line. And what is interesting to me that's been coming out is how this guy uh, managed to get in and get his resident status right away when he was fleeing from Saudi Arabia. If he came over here as a refugee, or now he's got resident status. And there's also other things like that funny little story of what was it, the African warlord or something that just got murdered in London, Ontario, um, a little while ago. It seems we've let some interesting people come into Canada when they have to flee uh, some of these countries, and a lot of the times their problems follow them here. Christian Luprecht, what do you have to say about that? Saudi Arabia is quintessentially an absolute monarchy. And so the intelligence chiefs tend to have a very personal synergistic relationship with the ruler. And so when the ruler changes that uh, inherently, you know, the intelligence chiefs quite literally know where the bodies are buried. It's, I think, his him putting MSB on notice that uh, the more you try to come after me, uh, the more public I'm going to be about your particular actions. And of course, one easy way for him to reveal what the Saudis are up to uh, is in a civil suit that uh, would require a fairly extensive disclosure of evidence about Saudi activities. Uh, so I think there's probably a, a bigger g- intelligence game being played here than uh, we notice on the surface. Basically, where are we at on this, Phil? I know you say you think it should be getting a lot more attention than it has been. I, I do, but again, I, I see both sides of this, Libby. I see the danger to Dr. Al-Jabri. Uh, I see that there, you know, again, I, I, wasn't, I didn't fall for turnip truck yesterday. I know that there are diplomatic issues here. There are bilateral relations here. There are multilateral regional relations that have to be, it's a complicated game. It's never easy, but it seems to me that this is an egregious um, illegal act in international law. And for it, it's sort of just kind of fritter away. I'm a little bit bothered by that. I, I think more should be done, but I'm hoping that there's adults in the room that are going to figure this thing out and make the right decision. Uh, Cause it is a tough one. I'm not saying it's easy, but I just think that, we can't let it go because this is really, really, this is bad. And we can't simply, you know, turn the corner and say, okay, let's go back to, to you know, the anti-quo relations or anti-status quo relations. We can't do that. Okay. Christian? Uh, we have United Front activities by China. We have various other intelligence agencies active in Canada, and we need to be much more aggressive at detecting them, disrupting them, and also being able to show our adversaries that we are able to prosecute and uh, that we will make these cases public as a way of deterring other countries from violating our sovereignty. Ross? MBS has a lot of money in the United States, including, I believe, part ownership of Twitter. And if this guy wins in civil court for his money, the U.S. will be able to get it for him. So maybe that'll be, uh, 
maybe it'll be the trial of the century coming up if we start having that one. Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants. Dr. Christian Luprecht, political science professor at the Royal Military College of Canada, as well as terrorism and security expert Ross McLean. You're listening to The Best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Kopsick. Justin Trudeau hoped to end speculation that Bill Morneau is getting fired. In a statement, the Prime Minister's office says he has full confidence in his finance minister. Ottawa's abuzz over the return of Mark Carney after a stint as Governor of the Bank of England, the former Bank of Canada chief's the only person to ever serve as the head of two central banks. He's been tapped to advise the Prime Minister on the recovery and is known to have had political ambitions. Does this add fuel to the rumors of Finance Minister Bill Morneau's ouster? Libby and the Fightback Strategy Panel, John Capobianco, Karen Stintz, Charles Bird weighed in. Anything with respect to potential cabinet changes or shifts, uh, be it provincial or federal, always get uh, uh, news attention. And it's actually newsworthy for sure, given the fact that we're talking about uh, the finance portfolio, which is one of the more critical, most critical portfolios um, uh, in any government. So, so I'm not surprised that it's getting a lot of attention. But now, given the fact that you've got somebody in, in the character of Mark, Mark Carney, who was obviously high profile uh, and, and somebody who's always talked about a political career, him being now an advisor to this government just makes the, the, the talk a bit more rampant uh, and, 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 ne- and necessary. And quite frankly, we also saw that one of the Liberal MPs uh, is stepping down in New York Center, which of course just is, exasperates this issue even more or gives it more oxygen, because if there's ever a riding that someone needs to run in, in a by-election to get into Parliament, Boy, that's a great one for Mark Carney to consider. Charles, uh, what do you make of all of this? There's no doubt Mark Carney is is an astoundingly accomplished individual um, and uh, former senior assistant deputy minister at the Federal Department of Finance, governor of the Bank of Canada, governor of the Bank of England. But something tells me that the, the timing is just is just not quite right. You know, the the we charity issue has obviously been a gift to the opposition parties because it gives them something to talk about other than COVID, which has obviously been strong ground for the federal government. My own sense is that Minister Morneau will remain at finance. There have been certainly a lot of rumors about discord between the Prime Minister's office and uh, and the office of the Minister of Finance. But there's traditionally a tension between central agencies and the Finance Department in Ottawa. Finance Department's traditionally that department that has to say no to a lot of people. But one of the defining characteristics of any successful government is the ability of the Prime Minister and the Minister of Finance to, to function effectively. And, you know, Paul Martin and Jean Crenshaw, it was no great secret that they didn't like each other very much. Uh, that but would they, be a mild way of putting it. Yeah. They also performed very, very effectively together. And Prime Minister Crenshaw, to his credit, always backed Paul Martin right up to the very end when um, Mr. Martin left the cabinet. Now, obviously, COVID has put the finances of this country in a whole different light. The Prime Minister's office has been more directly involved in decision-making that would traditionally be the purview of the Department of Finance. That has inevitably created some degree of tension, some degree of, you know, personal noses rubbed the wrong way, what have you. But is it enough to replace the Minister of Finance? Probably not. Is Minister, is, is Mark Carney interested in being Minister of Finance right now? Probably not. 
Anyway, we can talk about York Center a little bit, but um, I'm more interested to see that Peter McKay, who I think is going to win the federal conservative leadership, if he's going to have the nerve to run in York Center. Uh, Karen? Yeah, you know, I think that, uh, you know, when we read in the newspapers, you know, sources talk about um, Mark Carney and that he would replace Morneau. I think that this is really the Liberals actually throwing out a trial balloon to see what popular opinion might uh, reveal and whether or not it does make sense for Mr. Carney to even consider that role. You know, but and there's always, um, but there's always a worry that this is, you know, and we've talked about this before, that, you know, the party's looking for a new savior. And uh, the savior is Mark Carney. There's no question he's an accomplished a person with a great resume and, a, and, a, and an incredible track record of accomplishment. But um, as John knows and as Charles knows, like being a, ta- a talented, competent individual doesn't necessarily make you a good politician. And so there's always that worry that, um, you know, he wants, that there is a sense that he wants to do this job or the Liberals want him to do this job and that, you know, here's a prime opportunity for him to run in New York Central, uh, York Center rather, and, um, and yet it's just not the savior that everyone hopes it's going to be. Uh, so, you know, I think that for sure this is the Liberals tossing out a trial balloon just to test the waters to see to see what people think about this idea. Fight back strategy panel, John Capobianco, Karen Stintz, and Charles Byrd. This is the best of fight back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. A new report from the Ontario Human Rights Commission finds blacks are far more likely to be arrested, charged, shot, and killed by Toronto police. Libby spoke with interim chief commissioner... Ina Chatta, civil liberties lawyer Anthony Morgan, and lawyer Julian Faulkner, who represented Defonte Miller, the young black man badly beaten by an off-duty Toronto officer. Yes, the research showed that between 2013 to 2017, a black person in Toronto is 20 times more likely to be the victim of a, a Toronto Police Service for shooting. And so when you juxtapose that to the uh, percentage that you opened with, that black people uh, only constitute 8.8% of the city's population. Uh, and then we see, with respect to the data regarding charges, they end up uh, being the victims of or having been involved in third, uh, over a third of all charges. You see the magnitude of the difference. And so those those statistics are deeply disturbing because they speak to a gross gross disproportionality between how um, the numbers of black civilians and the how the Toronto Police Service are dealing with them. Anthony Morgan, uh, none of this is a surprise. Uh, what makes this particular report stand out? Well, I think the climate of the times is, is really important to note. We're having more public, open, and I would say honest conversations about the presence and prevalence of anti-black racism and naming it specifically. It's not that anti-black racism is new. It's just that where those conversations were happening uh, has, I think, shifted in the last uh, couple of months with the uh, resurgence of Black Lives Matter following the the, uh, killing of of George Floyd. So what makes this, I think, different this time is that we have a report where folks are more prepared to have a more directed, focused conversation on what anti-black racism looks like and looks like in, in policing. 
Toronto's new interim police chief offered an apology for one of the most notorious cases, that of DeFonte Miller, a young black man who was badly beaten by an off-duty police officer and ended up losing an eye. DeFonte Miller rejected the apology, calling it a, quote, public relations exercise. His lawyer, Julian Falconer, joins me now. Why are you calling that apology a public relations exercise? exercise. I don't think DeFonte or his family uh, uh, take that position lightly. It's, it's always difficult. Uh, people want to move forward, and uh, when trust has been broken, um, there's a natural human desire to restore it. But uh, the circumstances surrounding uh, this make it pretty obvious it's a pretty empty apology. Uh, minutes before uh, Chief Raymer uh, uh, conducts uh, a scheduled press conference. A report was dropped uh, in my email. And what becomes immediately obvious is that there is an intention to go public and uh, sort of defaulties an afterthought because there's no possible way even his lawyer gets a chance to read the report before this press conference happens in a few minutes. And the truth of the matter is that that's, that's not respectful. That's not how in our normal lives we deliver apologies, right? Uh, so that's why DeFonte called it, uh, well, the quote from DeFonte Miller was, you know, apologies are important, public uh, relations exercises are not. And this is obviously that, and that's too bad because I think that's an opportunity lost. What would you like to leave us with on this? Well, I think it comes down to this. If people want to see real change in policing, then that police board, because understand the civilian oversight body of the police service, actually are responsible for making orders to the chief. Push the Toronto Police Board, push Mayor Tory to create concrete changes. And and that's the part, I think often we don't appreciate the role of the police board. They can make the changes because they're in charge of policy. Interim Chief Ontario Human Rights Commissioner Ina Chada, Civil Liberties Lawyer Anthony Morgan, and lawyer Julian Faulkner, who represented DeFonte Miller, the young black man badly beaten by an off-duty Toronto police officer. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio, and here are some of the best calls of the week. David in Toronto phoned in to talk about homeless shelters in neighbourhoods. I just think that they could have possibly implemented better security um, prior to the implementation of the Roehampton Hotel. Even though there is a COVID situation going on, I mean, uh, your pay security guards at the desk, um, metal detectors, things like that would help to protect both the residents and the neighbourhood. Lucy in Toronto says the provincial finance minister has to go after revealing the deficit is projected to hit $38.5 billion. I think that Rod Phillips, the finance minister for Ontario, should resign. I think he's done a terrible job. The deficit is unbelievably high. Ontario will go bankrupt if it, if it has a deficit over $20 billion. I mean, what... Is he thinking? I don't know what they're thinking, spending all this money. There's a cutoff point for everything with the huge amount of unemployment in in Ontario. I think it's horrible. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. 
There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Andrea in Toronto, who weighed in on the situation in long-term care homes in the wake of news of another multi-million dollar lawsuit against an operator. What makes me madder than anything is why nobody has asked Minister Fullerton to be accountable for this. Like, she still has her job. She's still collecting a lovely paycheck, I'm sure. And she just stands there with the Premier, which is very nice of him to to back her up, but why isn't her neck on the chopping block? If she says, oh, we've been working on it, is that good enough? As a Ontarian, that for me is no way good enough. I'm a senior. I, I told my daughter, I will die at home before you put me in a long-term care home. I will die. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us from noon to one weekdays, or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsick. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.